Welcome to Damn Good Movie Memories with your host, Ryan Davis. This podcast is the cure for your long commute and super boring work day. From the beginning of motion picture history, Hollywood has tried to show you what the afterlife is really like. Good afternoon and welcome to Judgment City. You have any idea what's going on? No. Well, in a nutshell, you're here to defend your life, and I'm going to help you. Defend my life? Finally. Wow. The first true story of what happens after you die. Where am I? Is this heaven? No, it isn't heaven. Is it hell? Actually, there is no hell. Although I hear Los Angeles is getting pretty close. Didn't anyone ever tell you you carry yourself very stiffly? Leave me alone, I'm dead. That's life! Albert Brooks. You make me think of my little poodle. Meryl Streep. I think I might have been a heavyset man at one time. Rick Torn. Lee Grant. Buck Henry. In a new film by Albert Brooks. So I'm on trial for being afraid. Well, first of all, I don't like to call it a trial. Second of all, yes. If you see one movie before you die. I love you. I love you. This is damn exciting stuff. See, defending your life. Most people love it. Some it makes nauseous. <laughs> don't worry about it. Hey there, it's Brian Davis, and for this week's episode, we're going to cover Defending Your Life from 1991. The studio was Warner Brothers. The release date was March 22nd, 1991. The running time, 111 minutes with the rating of PG. Couldn't find the budget numbers, and the box office took in $16.3 million, making it the 71st ranked movie of 1991. Rotten Tomatoes gives it 97% fresh from 32 reviews. Roger Ebert at the time gave it 3.5 out of 4 stars, and here's his review. A recent survey indicated that most Americans believe in heaven and hell, and of those who believe, the overwhelming majority expect to find themselves in heaven after they die. Since many of them obviously deserve to go to the other place, if only owning cars with burglar arms that go off in the middle of the night, a movie like Defending Your Life makes perfect sense. It is Albert Brooks' notion in this film that after death, we pass on to sort of a heavenly way station where we're given the opportunity to defend our actions during our most recent lifetime. The process is like an American courtroom with a prosecutor, defense attorney, and judge, but the charges against us are never quite spelled out. The basic question seems to be, are we sure we did our best given our opportunities? The movie is funny in a warm, fuzzy way, and it has a splendidly satisfactory ending, which is unusual for an Albert Brooks' film. His inspiration in his earlier films is bright, but seems to wear thin towards the third act. The best thing about the movie, I think, is the notion of Judgment City itself. Doesn't it make sense that heaven for each society would be a place much like Earth that it knows? We're stuck with images of angels playing harps, which work fine for Renaissance painters. But isn't our modern world ready for images in which the angels look like Rotarians and CEOs? 
Stanley Kubrick's 2001 ended with an astronaut leaving the solar system and finding himself quite unexpectedly in a spotless hotel room. The usual explanation for that scene is that a superior race from somewhere else in the universe has constructed this room for him in a pl- as a place where he would feel at home, while they studied him, much as a zoo throws in some trees for the monkeys. The best joke in defending your wife is that heaven is run along the lines that would be recommended by a good MBA program. And that's the end of Ebert's review. So when I mention defending your life to someone, I almost always get one of two distinct reactions. One reaction, they've never heard of it and totally missed it when it was initially released and it just fell off the radar. The other reaction is the person's eyes light up and they go on and on about how wonderful the film is and I now have a new best friend because I've not only seen the film but I have a fondness for it. And this is the main joy I get from doing this podcast, the ability to introduce somebody to a newfound gem. And I believe Defending Your Life is one of those films that you'll wish you saw years ago. Let's get into the main cast. You get Albert Brooks, who plays Daniel. And just like this film, Brooks is one of the most underrated talents there is. His early work as a stand-up comic is just fabulous, and his film often seem to get overlooked, even though they're really, really well done and clever. So his film break was in Taxi Driver with Robert De Niro in 1976. He had a small memorable role as Goldie Hawn's husband in Private Benjamin, where he dies the night of their wedding in the middle of the throes of passion, (laughs) consummating their marriage. He wrote and directed and starred in Modern Romance in 1981. He appeared in Unfaithful Yours with Dudley Moore in 1984. And then he wrote, directed, and starred in Lost in America with Julie Haggerty in 1985. And then he had a great role as a news reporter in Broadcast News prior to Defending Your Life. Brooks wrote and directed Defending Your Life, a true underrated talent, in my opinion. Meryl Streep plays Julia, and if Albert Brooks is the most underrated person in Hollywood, Streep is completely the opposite in the sense that she's the most revered actress of her generation. I can't think of anyone who gets more praise, and deservedly so, than Meryl Streep. Prior to Defending Your Life, her notable films include The Deer Hunter, Manhattan, Kramer vs. Kramer, Sophie's Choice, Silkwood, Out of Africa, Heartburn, Ironweed, She-Devil, and Postcards from the Edge. Rip Torn plays Bob Diamond, and Torn is one of the best character actors ever, and he's absolutely perfect in this film. There's far too many films to mention for Rip Torn, but if you've seen him, you know he's the best no matter what he's in. All right, let's get into the film. The movie gets going right out of the gate, and you hear Daniel Miller, that's Albert Brooks, delivering jokes at a meeting for his company. And before you see the conference room, it almost sounds like he's doing stand-up. His co-workers have given him a new CD player for his 39th birthday. Daniel's friend is played by James Eckhouse. You might remember him from Beverly Hills 90210, where he plays Jim Walsh. And he's driving him to a car dealership so that Daniel can pick out his new BMW with leather. The joke is that Daniel is going through a midlife crisis with his new car choice. And it's funny watching Daniel look at his gifts, which are a stack of new CDs in the long box form. Remember those? And his CDs include Don Henley, James Taylor, Barbara Streisand, and Edie Brickell. That is some middle-aged boomer shit for the times. The great part about Albert Brooks' movies is the dialogue. Again, Brooks is incredibly underrated as an actor, and even his throwaway lines in this film are especially terrific. So Daniel's new Beamer comes with a CD player as well, which was a big deal back in 1991, and it makes me sad to think that almost no new cars today, this is 2020, comes with CD players. It's really a sad state for physical media. Anyway, Daniel is listening to his new Barbra Streisand CD while zipping along in his new BMW convertible. 
This is pretty hilarious to watch, as nothing says, let's go crazy in that new convertible like Babs. Another driver honks at him and yells, do we all have to hear that? (laughs) Daniel's definitely a distracted driver and almost drifts into a few lanes before being honked at. Finally, in a cruel twist of fate, his newly stacked set of long box CDs slip off the passenger seat, and then he reaches down to get them and completely takes his eyes off the road. He then drifts into the left lane into oncoming traffic and then collides head-on with a city bus. Immediately the next scene, we see a very lethargic Daniel in a white onesie and in a wheelchair being taken down the hall in a building that looks like a hospital. He's with a number of other folks all heading in the same place in wheelchairs. He is then placed onto a shuttle, and the tour guide informs everyone that they're in Judgment City, which is not on Earth. I think you can gather where this is going. Basically, the way the guy describes things, it sounds like a retirement community. Everyone on the shuttle is essentially in an awake state, but almost coma-like, meaning they can't speak or move much. This effect will wear off in the next day or two. Everyone is in Judgment City for five days. Daniel and the others are taken to a hotel, and they immediately fall asleep in their rooms. The next morning, Daniel is given a wake-up call by his defense attorney, Bob Diamond, played by Rip Torn, who tells him to take a shower and get dressed. Now, they only have long, white, robe-like outfits to wear, and then he, he has to go to Bob Diamond's office. Daniel can now speak after his rest. Bob informs Daniel that his time in Judgment City is for him to, quote, defend his life. Essentially, he needs to prove his case to the higher power in order to get into heaven. The nice part about Judgment City, and there are many great things, is that you can eat as much as you want and never gain weight. The weather is also always 75 degrees and sunny. Daniel decides to check out what's on TV, though there are only five stations to choose from in Judgment City. He never loved me. He never loved me for a second. I've loved you from the first day I met you. When was the first day you met me? Do you remember? Don't do this to me, Karen. Of course I remember. What's my middle name? You never told me that. That's the first thing I told you. In which life? In which life? That's it, Lenore. You tried, you failed. The game's over for you. Stay here, and someone will come get you. Stu, the decision is yours. Do you want to stop here, or face your fear? Face the fear. He's facing his fear. He's facing his fear. You might just get a hole in one. Say, want to eat a lot? Ted's House of Buffet says you can have everything you see, plus more. Our chefs will cook it, but they won't look. Like the horseback ride, Judgment Stables, open till sunset, welcomes you. If your trial's through early, come take a two-mile ride with us. You'll have fun. (laughs) This is wild. Now, let me get this straight. You actually had sex with Benjamin Franklin? Twice. How was he? He was fat, Bob. Daniel goes to the hotel restaurant and gets breakfast, which is brought out to him in 10 seconds after he orders. 
It's also the best omelet he's ever had. However, he must catch his little tram in order to get to Bob Diamond's office on time. Never exit the tram while it's in motion because of the electronic field that's set up around the moving vehicle. It is very dangerous. Thank you. Oh, young. AIDS? Oh, no. Car accident. Oh, my God. But you feel okay now, don't you? Yes, I do. Oh, me too. Isn't it amazing? Is this what you thought it would be? I certainly didn't. I don't know what it is yet, do you? No, I guess I don't. You make me think of my little poodle. Do you have a dog? I did have a dog, yeah. Oh. Well, I'll tell you about my dog. I had a little while. Have you got a while? Yeah, go oh, ahead. Let us on the train those days. We didn't have to put him in the baggage car. And every time the conductor was coming around, he knew it. And he crawled down in the corner of the baggage. Did you ever have a dog? You asked me that twice. <laughs> What'd you say? Yes. What did I say? You said it's wonderful. Well, it is. Mr. Miller, welcome. I'm Helen, one of Mr. Diamond's assistants. Oh, hi. Would you come with me, please? Sure. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. All right, then Bob Diamond then explains what Daniel is doing in Judgment City. Uh, sit down, my friend. What are you looking at? What's wrong? You, you look good in that tupa. Some people don't, but you do. It, it's flattering to you. Thanks. So, is this what you thought it would be? Thought what would be? Where am I? Is this heaven? No, it isn't heaven. Is it hell? No, it isn't hell either. Actually, there is no hell. Although I hear Los Angeles is getting pretty close. <laughs> well, Daniel, let me tell you what's going on. When you're born into this universe, you're in it for a long, long time. You have many different lifetimes. And after each lifetime, there's an examining period which you're in now. You see, every second of every lifetime is always recorded. And as each one ends, we sort of look at it. Look at a few of the days, examine it. And then if everybody agrees, you move forward. What do you mean move forward? I mean, move forward, continue onward. The point of this whole thing is to keep getting smarter, to, to keep growing, to use as much of your brain as possible. For example, I use 48% of my brain. Do you know how much you use? 47? <laughs> three. I'm sorry? Three. I use 3% of my brain? Yes, don't worry about it. Everybody on Earth uses 3% of their brain. Three to five percent. That's why they're there. Three? Three percent? Three percent? You mean nobody on Earth uses more than that? 
When you use more than 5% of your brain, you don't want to be on Earth, believe me. Well, not that your takeout places aren't lovely, but there are many more exciting destinations for smarter people. Now, being from Earth as you are and using as little of your brain as you do, your life has pretty much been devoted to dealing with fear. It has? Well, everybody on Earth deals with fear. That's what little brains do. What are little brains? That's what we call you folks behind your back. <laughs> Forgive me. Who are you? Well, I'm just like you. I was on Earth a long time ago. But I advanced. I moved forward. I got over my fears, and I got smarter. Did you have friends whose stomachs hurt? Every one of them. It's fear. Fear is like a giant fog. It sits on your brain and blocks everything. Real feelings, true happiness, real joy. They can't get through that fog. But you lift it, and buddy, you're in for the ride of your life. God, my 3% is swimming. Uh, uh, what are you reading? You wouldn't understand this. It's just numbers. You read numbers? Yes, sir. So I'm on trial for being afraid. Well, first of all, I don't like to call it a trial. Second of all, yes. Well, what if I'm guilty? What happens to me? Don't think innocent or guilty. Worst comes to worst, you'll go back to Earth and you'll try it again. Well, what do you do? You just keep going back until you get it right? Well, you don't keep going back. Eventually, they'll throw you away. As we discovered, Judgment City time is used to determine if a person is ready to go to heaven by conquering their earthly fears and using more of their brain. If not, they are sent back to Earth to try again. The quote-unquote trial will last four days, and over those four days, the lawyers examine nine specific days of the defendant's life on Earth. Daniel won't know exactly which days they are until the trial begins. Judgment City serves over 400,000 people. Children, however, do not come to Judgment City because they don't need to defend themselves. Only adults do. After meeting with Bob, Daniel decides to visit Judgment City's comedy club. He also meets Julia, Meryl Streep. Well, folks, I'm going to tell you a little story. About a year ago, this little brain comes in here. I'm talking, and this is documented, half a percent of his brain at the most. He orders a piece of pie. He forgets what it is. He looks down, doesn't know what it is. Well, I know what it is. I'm looking at it's a piece of pie. I say, what the hell are you doing? He says, I'm waiting to make a call. So what does that look like, a phone? He says, it is a phone. <laughs> well, the joke is on me. He picked up the pie, called his mother. Folks. Come on, please, stay with me here. You're on trial, not me, okay? Hi, what's your name? Arthur. Hi, Arthur, and where were you from? Denver. Lovely city, Denver, Arthur. Did you ski? No. No. How'd you die? I was in a coma. I'm sorry. How long were you in a coma? I really don't know. Let's play a game, Art. Elvis, living or dead? A living. Long coma, Art. Long coma. Have a nice day. Hi, how are you? What's your name? Ernie. Hi, Ernie. You having a good time here in Judgment City? Oh, it's fun. Food's good. Yeah, it is, isn't it? Have you been to the stables, a little exercise? You like to horseback ride? Not very much. Good. Oh, there's a nice-looking young man over there. Hi, how'd you die? On stage, like you. <laughs> Pretty funny. Maybe you should come up here, huh? No, thank you. 
Well, of course he doesn't want to come up here. You know why? Because this is very hard work. But I love to do it. And I love you little brains. Matter of fact, have you heard any of you little brain jokes lately? Well, they're all Hi. about. Hi. Huh? I know you, right? I hope so. Who are you? Two. I'm Julia. Well, hi. I'm Daniel. Hi. You know me? You like these? Well, I thought I did. You weren't in the bus, were you? What bus? I hit a bus. Oh, no, I don't think so. Oh, good. Sit down. familiar to me. Really? Yeah. Maybe because I'm the only man in here under a hundred. Check the time. You know, I want to tell you a true story. This really happened. About three months ago, these six dead people come in. Now I know how you Obviously, guys humor has nothing to do with brain size. You. I like Obviously. But they come in here or you want to take a walk or something? Or? Really you want to stay and see the show? Well, I have to. That's my dad. And all of a sudden, whoop, one of them cuts the cheese. I'm kidding. <laughs> After the comedy club, Daniel and Julia decide to take a nice walk together and they discuss their lives on Earth. Daniel makes Julia laugh constantly and they definitely have a connection. The next day, Daniel goes to court for the first day of his trial and the video process of his life on Earth. Over the course of the following four days, I will attempt to show that Daniel Miller, while he's a quality human being, is still held back by the fears that have plagued him lifetime after lifetime. I believe that I can show, without a shadow of a doubt, that he must once again be returned to Earth to work on this problem. May we begin in childhood, please? Could we go to 11-4-19? By the way, Mr. Miller, that signifies you're 11 years, 4 months, and 19 days old. Is that clear? I think so. Well, in other words, if I said 9-2-17, you would be 9 years, 2 months, and 17 days old. I understand. myself is, is that what you mean no i mean emotionally what kind of feelings did this bring up 
Um, frustration? It's not a test. There's no right answer. Is that what you felt? Frustration? I guess. Do you know why you were afraid? I object. How did we introduce the word afraid all of a sudden from frustration to afraid? This is already pronouncing him guilty. Could we use another word, please? What word would you use? What word would I use? How about restraint? I think the little boy was quite dignified. Restraint? Yes, ma'am. May I show you what I mean? Be my guest. Your honors, maybe go to 1817, please. What are you accusing me of? Nothing. What are you accusing me of? Nothing. Why don't you say it to my face? What are you talking about? Why don't about? you ever think about my problem? Just lower your voice. Lower my voice? You said you wouldn't yell in front of the baby. The baby. It's no. always the baby. What about me? I live here too. This is my house too. I work very, very hard to pay for this house. You no, you don't. The minute I earn it, you go out and spend it. What do you mean? You think I spend too much money? Yes. All I do is scrap. Look, if you don't like it, why don't you get on your high horse and get out of God, here? God, stop it. No. This happens every time you drink. Oh, Every please, time. lecture time. It's lecture time. Why don't you just sit down and enjoy the lecture? Please. Don't touch me. Please. Just, just, just. In that one brief, extraordinary moment when that baby and his father's eyes linked, this child learned the meaning of restraint. He wasn't afraid. He was mature. He was nonviolent, dignified, I call it. Now, my colleague may believe in hitting first and asking questions later, but we're not all that way. In another scene, Bob shows a scene of Daniel's life where he was in school as a kid and gave his art supplies to his friend that did not bring his own supplies to class. Daniel was berated by the teacher in front of the other students, but he didn't want his friend to take the heat. Bob uses this moment to prove Daniel's morality and courage that he took a punishment that he didn't deserve in order to help his friend. However, the prosecuting lawyer, Lena Foster, played by Lee Grant, has tape of that evening when Daniel is talking to his father about really what happened in school. to punish me? Yes, we do. First of all, no television for a month! I didn't do it! Steve did it! It was Steve's fault! What are you saying to me? Steve lost the paints. He probably stole them just like he stole the books. I didn't do it, you gotta believe me. Steve? Yeah! Hey, punish him! What happened to your friend Steve? Do you remember, Mr. Miller? What do you mean? He was expelled from school two days later. Isn't that what happened to him? I thought he left on his own. What's the point, please? I'm trying to look at the results of what you call a courageous action. Mr. Miller might have acted bravely in the classroom, but we just watched him crumble a few hours later. And why? At the threat of no television? I was 10 years old. Television is everything to a 10-year-old. It's like heroin. You can't just pull it away. And I never wanted to watch television. My parents made me because they wanted to go out, and I got hooked. Your Honors, Ms. Foster and I have had this argument for a long time. I think the act itself is what's important, but she wants to keep enlarging it until everything loses its meaning. 
If I fix the flat tire on your car, and two years later I lose your garden hose, according to you, I'm not going to get any credit for the flat. I'm just a dumb guy who lost the hose. Now, let me suggest this. Did we ever stop to think that this young boy had a bond with his father? I don't think it had anything to do with the friend. I just think Daniel couldn't lie to his dad. That's all. You're nodding, Mr. Miller. Does that mean that you agree with Mr. Diamond? Oh, yes. I had a bond with my father. I pretty much never lied to him. You never lied to your father? Would you like me to show you at least 500 examples? I said pretty much never lied. I didn't say I never, ever lied. You have to lie sometimes in an emergency, but uh, it doesn't mean that the bond is affected. If you've got the bond, the bond's always there. And if you have to lie occasionally, you're not going to interfere with the bond. You know, a, the bond can wait for a little lie, and at the end, it's there for you. You know, sometimes in the middle of a lie, I found that the bond would kick in. Maybe squeeze a little truth out. Psst. Wrap it up. I'm through. So that night, Daniel decides to grab a bite to eat and heads to a sushi restaurant. Today, sushi seems like the norm, especially in the Bay Area. But back in 1991, it was less common. It's really funny to see the sushi chefs overly friendly, which does happen in some places. Hi. Thank you. Uh, some sake. Sake. I want sake. Sake. How are you tonight? Thank you. Thank you. Ah, thank you very much. What's good here? Everything we have. Everything good. What's this? Looks like a worm. That's a resident food. What does it taste like? You're going to throw up. Okay. Let me have the tuna. Tuna. Yes, okay. Tuna. There we go, tuna! Oh, very fast. Very fast. So I've been told. Mm, delicious. Do you like it? Very good. Thank you Thank very much. You. Thank you. So how many days are you looking at? Hmm? How many days are you looking at? Nine. Nine? Mm -hmm. Nine days? Oh my god! Nine days! Nine days! Thank you very much! Nine days! You better have more sake. You got nine days. Yeah. I had 15. Name's Frank. Daniel. Uh. 15 days? Mm. Is that a lot? I don't know. Mm. How'd you die, Dan? May I call you Dan? Yeah. I got hit by a bus. Mm. What about yourself? I shot in the head. Really? Murder? No. Hunting accident. Some putts with bad eyesight thought I was an animal. <laughs> How'd you make your living, Dan? Advertising. What about yourself? I made a lot of money in adult books. Selling them? No, reading them. Yes, of course, selling them. <laughs> Were you from L.A.? You know those nightclubs up by the airport? Those strip clubs? I coined the phrase, all nude. What do you mean? Well, that was mine. So I bought two of the clubs that were going under. They were only using the word... Nude. I put up totally all nude. Mm -hmm. Double business in a month. I'm going to take a piss. You want to go? Yeah. 
Thank you very much. I'm not leaving. I'm just going to take a piss. Take a piss. Take a piss. The next day in court, Daniel finds out that Bob can't make it and that another lawyer is going to fill in for the day, which definitely gives Daniel anxiety. Dick Stanley, played by Buck Henry, assures Daniel that he is more than qualified and uses 51% of his brain. (laughs) The prosecution begins with a scene where Daniel is 24 years old and is given a stock tip about watches being made in Japan. Daniel does not take the tip and doesn't invest $10,000 in the stock. That company was Casio, and he would have made over $30 million. He instead invested in cattle, and their teeth fell out. (laughs) The reason the prosecution brought this episode up was to prove Daniel's poor decision-making. Daniel's lawyer doesn't even put up a defense, and the prosecution moves on to the next episode involving Daniel's ex-wife helping him prepare for a negotiation with his boss. 59? 65. 60? 65. 61. Let me make it plain. I cannot take the job for under 65 under no conditions. Your Honors, I would like to go directly to the next afternoon and show you the real encounter. Daniel, I'm prepared to offer you $49,000. I'll take it. I'm going to get you a parking place. Okay. Why did you cave in so fast? I'm just curious. Why did you accept so much less money than you wanted and do it so quickly? Here we go again with money. Obviously, this is all about money. Look, I'm guilty. I didn't make enough money, okay? Call me a hippie, send me to hell. I give up. You keep thinking it's about money, but it's about fear. Why didn't you stand up to your boss the way you did to your wife? What happened in your mind? Well, first of all, it wasn't my wife. It was a man with a suit, and the suit had an odor. And the odor said $49,000. I like that very much. So your nostrils told you you were worth less. Is that what you're saying? The process that a person goes through when they're accepting a salary is a complicated one. You don't know all my reasons. Anyway, we live fine on that money. That money was fine. If you want to make it about money, you may do so. But we're looking at fear. What was I afraid of? You tell me. Forty-nine grand's a lot of money. I have nothing more to say at this time. Mr. Stanley, I'm fine. I can't believe it. And you didn't want to toot your own horn. Would you like to show something, Mr. Miller? I got a raise six months later. Well, if you'd like to show that, you let us know. Ms. Foster? Uh, Your Honors, at this time, I'd like to present a compilation of general misjudgments. Half of them fear-based, half of them just stupid. I've assembled 164 misjudgments over a 12-year period. Congratulations.
When I watched this film for the first time, I found myself really loving the creativity and brilliance of the film. No other movie has taken such a creative stance regarding death and the afterlife. And the fact that they took an earthly process like the judicial system to show a process like getting into heaven could work was just, just genius. All right, after another rough day in court, Daniel's attitude perks up as he runs into Julia in the courthouse and they spend the day together. They end up at the Hall of Past Lives Pavilion, and we get a great cameo from Shirley MacLaine as the host. Of course, there's a connection here because Meryl Streep was in Postcards from the Edge with Shirley MacLaine. The show will begin in 30 seconds. Welcome to the Past Lives Pavilion. In a moment, you will be asked to place your right hand on the plate next to you. An image of yourself in a former life will soon appear. When you have seen enough, simply remove your hand from the plate. Since we want to be fair and accommodate everyone, you will be limited to five past lives only. Thank you. Place your hand on the plate now. What the hell is this? Elizabeth, time for supper, darling. Be there in a moment, Mumsy. What the hell's going on here? Daniel and Julia are starting to fall for each other, and they want to see each other as much as they can while in Judgment City. Next, they go miniature golfing, and Daniel asks how Julia died. You know that you never told me how you died? How did you die? I don't want to talk about it. Why? It's embarrassing. Embarrassing? What could be embarrassing? I was hit by a bus. <laughs> I tripped. No. Yes. Seriously? You tripped? Yes. On what? We went to visit some friends for the weekend. Everybody wanted to go into town, but I wanted to stay at the house and go swimming. So I went outside, tripped over the chaise lounge, hit my head on the cement, and rolled into the pool. What did the East German judge give you? <laughs> so seriously, did you feel anything? Were you unconscious? Were you scared? I was pissed. You died pissed. I'm still pissed. I was a good swimmer. Well, swimming's only part of the sport. You've got to negotiate the patio furniture. <laughs> you know, in the Olympics, they're taking that part very seriously. 
the Romanians are excellent at it. <laughs> you make fun of me. I'm going to get you. <laughs> You've already got me. I don't have to start till three, so you want to have dinner tomorrow night? Actually, I thought I'd start dating others now. <laughs> I have my eye on this 91-year-old. <laughs> well, I'll be at the main entrance at five o'clock. I'll be there. If you get there early, just come to my screening room. You can take a look at some of my life. I'd like that. Chocolate swans. Swans? They're cream filled. They're really delicious. Swans? No. I think I'm just getting breath mints. So you can't tell from that scene, but they ended up kissing before saying goodnight. The next day in court, the prosecution shows a scene where Daniel agrees to present at a large conference, and he gets stage fright, and he tries to back out of speaking at the last moment possible. He does end up going on stage to speak, but before he can even say a word, the room is evacuated due to a gas leak in the hall. Bob defends Daniel by saying he still went out on stage, though Lena is adamant that he never said a word and never presented again, and his fear always gets the best of him. However, Bob tries his best to move along with Daniel's defense. Your Honors, I'd like to get off this scene and move on to something that I think we'll have a ball watching. This is damn exciting stuff. Uh, Daniel, where did this scene take place? I don't know what you're going to show. Oh, I'm sorry. We're going on to 3119, the snowmobile. Oh. Big Bear. Big Bear. Watch this, Your Honors. Just dynamite. How far did you have to go to get help? Oh. About three miles. Oh. 
You broke that leg in two places? Yes, I did. I'm proud of you. With no help, by himself, with as badly a broken leg as I've ever seen, this man crawled three miles to get help. You can't be serious. I'm sorry? What did we just watch? That is self-preservation. He didn't risk his life. He saved his life. Oh, I see. You're not a hero if you save your own life? A hero? No. No, you're not. You're not? No. No one here is accusing Mr. Miller of not having a survival instinct. But we're here to see if he can overcome Fear, not pain. You don't see the fear in this situation? What was he afraid of? Well, how about death, for starters? I hope you realize, Miss Foster, it would be very hard to be a brilliant public speaker if you're lying dead in the snow. Mr. Miller, for the record, you never rode a snowmobile again, did you? Wait a second. Not because I was afraid, because I hated it. You have to believe me on this. This has nothing to do with fear. This is hate. This is a rotten contraption, your honors. First of all, it heats up like a toaster oven. I burn the hair off my thigh from my knee to my crotch, singe it right off. Secondly, I don't know if it was the leather seat or if it was lined with fur, but years of rotting and drying out and getting wet. Mine smelled like an old sheepdog. Thirdly, it's very, very noisy. And they don't tell you about that. You don't find out until about the second hour when you can't hear anyone. You get off and have a snack, and your friends are in a silent movie. And fourth, uh, pardon the expression, but your balls vibrate for three weeks afterwards. I'm very proud of you. Very, very good day. Very emotional day. What are you going to do tonight? I'm going to see this woman. Julia? How'd you know her name? Still don't get the big braid bit, do you? I'll see you tomorrow. You should feel good. You did very well. See ya. Daniel visits Julia in her screening room and sees a clip of where Julia saved her kids from a house fire and that she even went back to save their cat. Unlike Daniel, Julia has led a fulfilling life and without fear. Both lawyers seem to really love Julia, along with the judges. The complete opposite to Daniel's case. So while this is a comedy, the way it's presented is very heartfelt. And the underlying message that you can't be afraid to do things in life is a really good thing to live by. It doesn't mean to make poor decisions and live recklessly, but it means you shouldn't be afraid to fail. By doing nothing, that's the real failure. You learn from your mistakes and then you grow. Daniel and Julia go to an Italian restaurant that night for another date. This leads to an amusing scene with Julia and her spaghetti. It's really a shame that Brooks and Streep didn't make more movies together because they really do have terrific chemistry. God. These portions are gigantic. Oh, man, so hungry. The residents love this place. It's supposed to be the best resident food in the area. Really? Mm -hmm. Good clumps, huh? Yeah. <laughs> Enjoy your meal. Thank you. So what was your favorite food in the whole world? Turkey with stuffing. Really? Yeah. I couldn't eat turkey. Why not? Well, when I was a kid, I had one as a pet and I named it. <laughs> and you can't eat something if you name it. I wish someone had told me that years ago. I would have named ice cream. <laughs> Do you eat meat? Sometimes. Yeah, not often. How about you? I like fish. Yeah, me too. What kind? Well, salmon. Yeah? 
And I like the kind that live near the nuclear reactors in the rocks. <laughs> I forget their name. <laughs> Glowfish? That's right. They light up your house when you cook them. How are you? How was your screening today? Oh, very, very good. Some Thank fine you. wine for yourself. Yes, please. Good, What's good. your name? Eduardo. Hello. How are you, sir? I'm fine. Good. You're going to eat a lot with us tonight, yes. no? Yes. What do you recommend, Eduardo? You like pasta? Very much. I'm going to bring you three pounds of it. The best you ever tasted. You're going to love it. What about you, my friend? You like uh, shrimp? Um, yeah. We can make it so fresh you crawl up and put it in your plate themselves. Aren't they high in cholesterol? I don't know what you're talking about, but they're high in everything. Don't worry about it. I'll be right back. <laughs> Here we are. Oh, you're going to love this. Ooh. And you are going to love this. Oh. There's 30 shrimp in there, and there's 30 more where that came from. Wow, this looks delicious. Oh. You like broccoli? Yes. You like it with a lot of cheese? Yes. <laughs> That's my girl. What about you, eh? Um, maybe just a touch. You got it. That's fine. How many days you looking at, eh? Nine. Ooh. You like a pie? I love pie. I like you. I'm gonna bring you nine pies to take with you. A pie for every day. Oh, don't eh? do, I don't want to take any pie. Hey, hey, it's my pleasure. Don't worry about it. They'll keep... Don't do it. Oh, no. uh, don't really. <laughs> Dig in, eh? All right, but don't bring me anything. This is fine. <laughs> Good? Mm. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. It's unbelievable. My prosecutor just sat there. Look. Don't look. I can't eat here. What are you talking about? You're just eating dinner. No, I'm not. I'm having 30 shrimp. I'm a pig. Come on. Everybody eats like this here. Yes, but everyone isn't having her watching them. She'll have this little teeny resident portion. I'm eating a fishing boat. Please, let's leave. No, you're being silly. You're just eating. Okay. Mm. You're right. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Enjoy it. Mm. Where's that going to end? <laughs> We're having fun when well, that's the important thing. <laughs> See what's happening now? This woman's looking at that. Really? This is causing me trouble. Don't look, don't look, don't look. Back, back, back. Back. Mmm. <laughs> Suck that up. <laughs> it's <Good>. long. <laughs> bite down now, please. Please bite. Bite, bite. After dinner, Daniel has to lug around two huge boxes with nine pies in them. Then he and Julia stop in the hotel lobby to have a heart-to-heart -heart talk. I know you think I've got it all together. You do. Mm, not quite. But one of the things I do know how to do really well is make things work. You know, I can take a situation and just make it okay. I've always been able to do that. But it's work. And this... This isn't... I don't know what this is. <laughs> but it's... Well, it's... Effortless. effortless. <laughs> 
And I've never, ever, ever had that before. Tell me about it. I didn't think it was ever going to happen to me, so great. Where do we find it? In the pit stop? Yeah. Thanks, God. <laughs> well, better this than nothing, I guess. I guess. Want to spend the night with me? More than anything else in the world. Oh, good. Come on, let's go. I don't think I can. I don't think I should. Why? Because this is already better than any sex I've ever had. Ever. And I don't want to screw it up. Literally. Well, how do you know what's going to happen? I don't. I don't. But let's say it's the most amazing thing that ever was. Then what am I going to do? By the looks of things, we're not going to the same place. So what, I'll just have to miss it forever and ever and ever? And what if it's not so good? And I won't even be able to fantasize about it. scene like you had today I would feel differently I'm sure I'd stay here I'd never leave but I've been defending myself so hard these last few days and I just don't want to be judged anymore I have this wonderful feeling inside of me but I'm I'm just tired of being judged it's okay I'm gonna miss you I'm gonna miss you so much I love you Daniel Daniel goes back to his hotel and doesn't spend the night with Julia, which he regrets, and so he leaves her a phone message saying he loves her and will miss her immensely. The next day is the final day of his trial, and he has to give his final summation to the judges. But has he truly conquered his fears? Especially the night before he didn't even spend the night with Julia. Your final summation, please. Well, I think it was thoughtfulness. And I would like to say something about this disease. Your Honors, I didn't think that Julia had a disease. But you must understand that right now on Earth, they're filling our heads with all these terrible things. They keep telling you over and over that you're not just sleeping with one person. You're sleeping with everyone they've ever slept with. And now that I've been to the Past Lives Pavilion, that could be 20 to 30,000 people. <laughs> As far as the rest of my life is concerned, I truly believe I turned a corner. I know I had a few fears left, but I was taken very young, and I feel I could have conquered them. So, if you see fit to let me move forward, I promise you, I will do the best I can. I will work very hard. I'll do whatever's required of me. I'll do the best I can. Honestly, I will. I'll do the best I can. Is that all, Mr. Miller? Yeah. But please just know that I'll... Do the best you can? Yeah. Good. Well, that's all, everybody. All right, so what happens to Daniel? And what happens to Julia? There's no way I'm going to give away that. If you're not seriously intrigued with this film by now, I don't know what to tell you. For me, it's one of the most underrated films ever made. It's completely original and wonderfully made. I can't think of a better movie to recommend if you've never seen it. 
All right, some fun facts. Albert Brooks worked on this story for over two years, and he was quoted as saying, I wanted the equation to be non-religious, non-heaven-like afterlife, he said. And I think the most interesting thing about the movie is what it says about Earth. Self-examination got a bad rap with all the yuppies turning inward, and I think it's an important thing to do. Brooks never thought he could get Meryl Streep for one of his films, but he had dinner with his friend Carrie Fisher, and she invited Meryl Streep. Brooks talked about his film, and Meryl Streep asked if there was a part for her. And, of course, the rest is history. All right, two of my frequent guests who have seen Defending Your Life and just lit up when I told them that I was doing this movie, one being Sonny Pooney from the Grown Up Rock podcast and, of course, Podcast Rock City, and then frequent guest Eric Sinzak. Both wanted to chat about Defending Your Life, and so that's exactly what we do. And then I will be back next week to talk about yet another random movie from my DVD collection. All right, we're back with Sonny Pooney from the Grown Up Rock Podcast and also Podcast Rock City. You love your kiss. And another thing you like is your life. Every Everyone wants to live the best life possible, but sometimes things happen, and that's what happens in Defending Your Life. When I, when I talk about this movie, some people haven't seen it, and I immediately tell them, you've got to see this movie. It's one of the most underrated films ever, and, and people that see it absolutely adore it. How did you find out about it? Well, first of all, let me tell you, it's, 57 it's day 57 10 for me today i don't know if you know that <laughs> but how much of your brain do you use oh two percent <laughs> yeah two percent i'm not even at three i'm at two uh, um the way i came about this movie and i don't know if this has ever happened to you but have you ever had friends that make references about a movie they saw and then start using it in the language that they're speaking to their friends with right so oh, sure yeah uh, my best friend uh, for like out of the literal blue, start going nine days. Every time you would hear the word nine days, you go nine days. I'm like, what the hell are you doing? Right. He goes, oh, you haven't seen this movie defending your life. And that's how I actually went and rented it and go. All right. If this thing's going to be kind of our part of our conversation, I guess I better go watch it. Loved it from the first time I saw it. The acting is so good in it because you got Albert Brooks. Albert, I mean, speaking about underrated, anything Albert, I think Albert Brooks is a genius. He just has this knack about him that he is super funny without being, um, you know, kind of overt and obvious with his comedy. And he's just brilliant. Plus, you have Meryl Streep who can do anything and then Rip Torn. I mean, just oh, the cast in this is terrific. Yeah. And the movie, maybe it didn't go straight to video, but man, you don't, uh, you don't hear this heralded as a, a movie of the early nineties. That's a mess. Watch. Why is that? I, I don't know. I think it just, for whatever reason, maybe people don't like to think about their own death <laughs> and maybe it's too morbid, but it's not treated that way at all. You know, it's one of the most unique storylines of a movie I've ever seen. Me too. Right. So uh, I'm just so surprised that it didn't take off. Uh, and it, I mean, that storyline would work today. This whole defending your life, I was thinking, if I had to defend my life, I'm just thrown in the town and say, dude, just just get me out of here. Where am I going? Just send me back. Actually, well, yeah. I'm, in, I'm at life 21. Just throw me away. I'm done. <laughs> well, yeah, it is so brilliant that you basically have to hire. I mean, they basically take civilization and then kind of transition it to you. You have to basically defend your life to get into heaven. And, and uh, you, you have to, uh, you know, go throughout your life like it's a, a lawsuit or it's a case, you know, it's a case. And, and it's absolutely brilliant. I just love that Rip Torns is is a defense attorney. And there's a couple of things that timestamp the movie a little bit. It was interesting. The old lady on the bus said, mm -hmm. oh, so young AIDS. 
Right. Oh, like, right. Oh. I'm like, <laughs> yeah. that wouldn't fly today, but I'm like, oh, this is 91. So it does kind of timestamp it a little bit. Or the CD um, he got as a, as a present. <laughs> that was actually, it totally took me back, right? Those yeah. long box CD things. I'm like, oh, and you know, the whole thing about the CD falling down, he has to go grab it and he crashes yep. to the bus that way. You know how many times my phone has fallen to the ground and I've probably done the same thing driving. I know. And how, I mean, it, what a stupid way to die. But yeah, that's how people <laughs> die all the time. They just, they're doing something so stupid and you, you lose track. And yeah. And he's totally going through a midwife crisis. He's got his, you know, his, uh, his BM, his convertible BMW. He's listening to Barbara Streisand and, and that's it. Yeah. There's some great parts in this movie. I like it that, um, Albert Brooks and Meryl Streep, they hit it off immediately, right? Sure. It was natural. It's quick. It just kind of shows you that Brooks is not exactly, I mean, he's not, you know, the best looking guy on the planet, honestly. Right. No. So just a quick wit and making a woman laugh, it works. Right. Oh, absolutely. And, and I love that line about you should be a, with a person that is just good enough, look uh, good enough, good looking enough to turn you on. <laughs> Any more than that just brings problems. <laughs> That's because uh, I'm in big trouble. Uh, Nicole's way past that, so yeah, I'm in big trouble with that. But uh, uh, yeah, there's a, oh, when he said, "So uh, how'd you die on stage like you, dying laughing <laughs> in that in that comedy club?" Oh yeah. my god, that is the best line in this whole movie. Well, yeah, that's and, and it's perfect because Albert Brooks started as a stand-up comedian, and he would open up for you know Neil Diamond and Richard Havens, and he would talk about it. And it was in the era where you didn't necessarily open up for other comics; you opened up for music acts, and and so I think part of that is definitely comes from a place uh, near and dear to him. There's mics all around here. There's a recording truck outside. Uh, a record is being made. There's nothing you have to worry about. Just, you know, have a good time. Uh, I Just don't identify your laughter. A lot of people like to do, you know, ha, 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 said Bill Harrison of Phoenix. <laughs> By the way, you know, this room is full, and I might say that there's a camera up there right now. There's a Jewish audience in the Wilshire Ebell Theater watching this. <laughs> they do that on high holidays when the temple fills up, they move into theaters, but they never take off the titles of the theater and thousands of Jews walk out of deep throat. <laughs> they ought to change the title. This is the, uh, for the last eight months, the performing I've done has, has been, uh, as a headliner, I have closed the show. Opening is another story. The, the first, Neil Diamond was the first person that I ever opened for uh, at all. I had done television before that, but never any live performing, only dead performing. <laughs> I met him at a college, I guess four years ago or so, in uh, Mississippi. I, I didn't meet him till the actual show. I was met by the student body president who picked me up at the airport, and he said, you're the comedian, huh? Yes. We had Al Cap here last night. He's a witty guy. <laughs> oh, boy. I'm in trouble. <laughs> in trouble. It was all right, it went very well. Uh, and I stayed on and off with Neil for about two years. I started with him when he was doing small colleges and my God, I watched the man price his way right out of the business. 
it, it was getting strange there towards the end. He would perform, then the owner of the building would come and give him the deed to the building. <laughs> you own this, and this is my house, and this is my car. Thank you, Mr. Donovan. Ride away on a bike. But no real bad experiences. Once in a while, I'd be in the middle of my act and somebody would yell, Kentucky woman! <laughs> Happy to have her here, thank you. <laughs> now, first of all, concert halls are getting too big anyway. What is it? There must be, what, 450, 500 people here? That's a good-sized crowd. Even up to 4,000 in a place like Philharmonic Hall that's built to handle it. After that, I mean, Grand Funk Railroad sold out Shea Stadium. David Cassidy sold out the Astrodome. 55,000 humans under eight in one building. <laughs> There's a disease in there somewhere. I would just like to see the parking for that. That's all I would like to see. More station wagons in one place than anywhere on the earth. <laughs> kids, quiet, kids, 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 kids. <laughs> if four, if four had ever... If Ford ever had to recall all their station wagons, that would be the best way to... Just hold a David Cassidy concert, sir, right in Detroit. They'll all come in, I promise. <laughs> yeah, but how do we get the Mercury's back? <laughs> get a hold of the coasters. It's getting worse. I mean, there are, there are buildings that are... There's no building large enough now, it seems. A three-dog night just passed a law within their group, uh, starting, I think, in two months. They will play no more buildings of any kind. They will just play states and do... <laughs> do 30, 32 concerts a year, stand in the middle of Kentucky and play, and everyone pays that day. <laughs> Appearing in Kentucky, three-dog night! Liar, liar! 850. <laughs> I'm just going to Dayton. <laughs> you heard it, you pay it. <sighs> what could the ultimate of that be? They get on a jet plane in New York and fly to Los Angeles and play in the plane, let the military promote the concert and have everyone in the country pay a dollar. <laughs> Excuse me, you two, see that plane? Yes, we do, two dollars. <laughs> let me treat you, honey. <laughs> now, we get, into, we get into certain rough, few rough concerts will stand out forever. I will talk about one this evening. I opened for Richie Havens in San Antonio, Texas. I did it on a second's notice. I was in New York going back to Los Angeles. Apparently, they had decided to have an opening act instead of not to, so there was no billing involved. The agency called and said, look, your transportation's paid for, you gotta come home anyway, stop off in San Antonio, do the show, make yourself some money. Great. Greed almost ended my life. <laughs> now, there was no billing. Now, no billing in most places, you can handle it. San Antonio is a different story. Let me think of the best way to describe it, in case you don't know. You will hear, read, see, think, draw, imagine, dream, vomit up the word Alamo till you want to go and hire the Cleveland Wrecking Company and break it down yourself. The Alamo is there. Everything in the town is named after. Every human, every building, every everything. Alamo Drugstore. No, we don't. Thank you. Alamo Dry Cleaner. In by 10, out by 5. Alamo Movie Theater. 8.30, 10, 30, 12, 30. Yes, sir. Alamo Mortuary. No, he's dead. Thank you. Every person walking in the street. There's Alamo Bradley and his wife, Alameda. Little Alamo Jr. 
this concert was supposed to start at 8 o'clock. I was in the lobby of the hotel at 7.30, met Richie and his band. We got into a station wagon. Very easygoing guy. Talked to me for a while, talked to the wagon for a bit. Really didn't, wasn't, wasn't a hard man to get along with. At 10 minutes to 8, we get to this place that no performing should have been done in. Ever, ever. It was originally built to store manure for the rest of the world. At 8.02, at 2 minutes after 8, not 8.30, not 8.45, 8.02, 6,000 people are in this place going, rich, 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 rich. <laughs> 30 minutes, 45 minutes you can handle. Two minutes is just silly. How did how all those people get organized that quickly? Rich, rich. I'm trying to dance to it, make a rhythm song. Richie, Richie. He's sitting there acknowledging. Hey, that's me. I know it is Richie. I was begging for a disc jockey to be there to introduce me. Usually, I, I hate it. But I wanted the disc jockey there because he would come out and the audience would get some of their hostility off on him. Uh, audiences hate disc jockeys. Uh, and they have a right to because generally, for the most part, disc jockeys are the worst human beings in the world. Now look, if there are some disc jockeys here tonight, you might be different. The disc jockey playing this record right now might be a great guy or gal. But for the most part, they're the worst. Now this is not my opinion, this is a medical fact. So it's not, it's not really me who's saying it. The AMA came out with a report about six months ago listing the three worst human beings in the world. First was incurable lepers, I'm afraid to say. Second was disc jockey. Third was curable lepers. In between the lepers. How you guys doing? How you doing? Don't you touch, you little rascal. Did you guys switch? Oh, Jesus. Now the disc jockey comes out on stage, the light hits him, and the audience is boo every time, everywhere. Everywhere in the world. In Hungary. They just boo. But a disc jockey is an amazing human. I envy him. There's something with his inner ear. The hairs are different. I don't know what's... Harvard Medical School is studying the disc jockey's inner ear now. Whatever noise he hears, he can turn instantaneously into a compliment. It's a great thing to see. Boo, you jerk! Thank you, you're beautiful. I said boo, I said thanks. Whatever you say to him. I think your fly's open. It is a great day, isn't it? How are you? There was no disc jockey there. All they had was an offstage mic for me to introduce myself. Now, I opened up the dressing room door. The noise doubled. Richie, Richie, open the door. Richie, Richie, Richie. The closer I got to the stage, the louder it got. I hold my ears. There was a guy sitting at this light and sound booth, the last human being before the stage. A sign said that above him, last human before stage. Don't feed. And in the midst of this, Richie, 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 he actually looked up and said, your name Richie? No, it isn't. They're gonna kill you. <laughs> Thanks very much. I told him to turn up the mic as loud as he could. I thought I'd just give him some great bull introduction, bowl them over, it didn't work. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen! And they didn't even stop. All they did, they just quieted down. Richie, 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 Richie. 
I wasted no time. <laughs> to open the show this evening. Took about four seconds. You could hear glasses drop. People <laughs> open, close. Hot, cold, soft, hard. Somebody else is here. Richie, Richie, I was dead. They went crazy. Richie. No matter what I said, what it worked, I gave myself some amazing credits. He's Johnny Carson's closest personal friend. He slept with Ed Sullivan. <laughs> he knows every Chinese human alive. <laughs> Would you welcome nothing? Boo, boo, boo. <laughs> now, in most parts of the country, a boo's all right, but down there, it's on a little teeter-totter. It's like boo, kill. Now, I'm standing on the edge of the stage, I walk one foot, I smelled more marijuana at one time than any, than I even imagined was possible. It was like rounding a building and bumping into a nine-foot joint coming the other way. <laughs> Ooh! Excuse me. <laughs> Bending from the filter, of course. I love animated things like that. I, I give credit to General Motors that people put them down, but they had a great cost to them in their new Flint, Michigan plant. They've put in four expensive animated smokestacks. So now at two minutes to five, it's a great thing. Oh, we worked all day and now we're done. <laughs> Moving up and down. Go home. Oh, we make the cars and we turn them out. Some don't work, there's no doubt. <laughs> well, I was in major trouble now. I mean, so I'm thinking to myself, I'm walking towards the mic, I'm thinking, all right, wait a minute, the marijuana, they're all stolen in a second, everything will be fine. As soon as I said that, I said, no, no, that's what Dick Clark said in the movie. That has nothing to do with reality. What am I talking about? <laughs> What does marijuana do? It takes you as an individual, whatever you like, you like that more, that's all. If you like to fool around with little chickens, you'll just get a lot of them someplace. That's... <laughs> In that part of the country, the wants really aren't that refined when they're stoned. You know? Kind of like, uh... let me see that. God almighty. <laughs> drink the biggest beer in the world. <laughs> Let me try that. You want to know some? I'd like to give me a Chevy with two steering wheels. <laughs> now I tried doing things. I tried mentioning the word dope. Nothing worked. I was getting close to the end of my life. My heart was saying, this is it. This is your last day on the earth. I pulled out the big gun. I couldn't help it. I didn't want to use it. It's just a trick, but I had to do it. It's a word. It works in that part of the country every single time. It's a miracle word. The word is shit. <laughs> I don't understand it, but 6,000 people, Ricky, 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 shit. <laughs> Hats come on the stage. People run out, begin to build a statue in the park. He's a hero, he's a hero, he's a hero. <laughs> Parades are scheduled. Oh my God. How does that work? I mean, do they talk about that after the show? Is that it? What'd you think of the comedian? Let me tell you one thing. When he said shit, I almost died. 
three weeks later at breakfast. Remember when he said shit in the morning? Anyway, so I just tell you the shit thing for your own protection. If you're walking in the south, walking in that part of it, someone comes up to you, give me everything you got. Points the gun at you, just poise yourself, clear your throat, shit. <laughs> Drop the gun. <laughs> I didn't know you were a professional. <laughs> Yeah, and I think, you know, going back, again, with the storyline, right, unique, going back in your life and you got to defend when you were 10, right, or you got to defend something that you did when you were 11 years old right. on a playground, like, oh, my God. I I was thinking, oh, when they asked, well, how much did you give to charity? I'm like, oh, I'm screwed right there. Just give me my <laughs> guilty plea. I'm out. <laughs> well, and then you have Meryl Streep, who's lived essentially the perfect life. She has done everything the right way. She went back into a burning building to save her children. <laughs> you know, like it's she she is the epitome of someone that is going to go to heaven. Yeah, yeah, totally. And, oh, the past lives pavilion. No way. I'm not going. I, they're just some things better left unknown. Would you go? <laughs> Oh, yeah, I think the curiosity. Oh, would my God. There's no way. No way. That what if you funny. find out that you were Jack the Ripper? Then Oh, that's true. Fun. That's true. Well, well, you would hopefully try to improve on it. <laughs> In your next life, you know, you don't want to be the, like the Green River killer, you know, and upgrade out, you know, to Ted Bundy. You know, that's yeah. Um, but yeah, that's funny. Somebody brought up a great point a long time ago. It's like, how come in our past lives, we're always someone famous? Why can't we just be, you know, Joe Schmo? It's a, you know, we're always like this King or this Prince or, or somebody legendary. It's like, there's only so many of those people. Yeah, that's funny. That's funny. And then when they were going through the 160 some odd judgments in the 12 year compilation, right. And he does the shampoo gurgling thing. I've, yeah. I've done that. I've done, I've, I've actually done that. Um, the whole thing about the used car guys laughing as he drives off in the clunker. I'm sure I've done that. There's no oh, yeah. doubt. And then, uh, him being embarrassed at dinner and his prosecuting attorney, basically watching it. I, I remember watching it first time going, Oh, that's coming back to bite you in the ass right there, man. That's like live. This just happened yesterday type stuff. Yeah, I mean the movie is so heady. It's funny. It, it's it's incredibly mature about how it handles this type of thing. And again, I've never seen a movie quite like this. And I, I, that's why I I was really excited kind of to do this this film. And I was glad that you had seen it because I think more and more people should should check this out. Yeah, I love that dry humor. And Albert Brooks sells it well because he kind of looks like a. He almost comes off as a nerd, not comfortable around women, um, mm -hmm. maybe a little bit of an introvert. But then the 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 zingers come so dry, they are hilarious. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And then you have his lawyer who is just as uh, you know, rip-torn, basically, is the same type of person. But he's supposed to be even smarter. That, that That's great. <laughs> yeah, the, this movie is so good. And I loved when he also he when uh, Rip Torn had another case or he had something else to do he he got another lawyer and and, and uh, Albert Brooks is just kind of incredulous like aren't you gonna dip like what are you doing he's not saying anything it's like he's playing along with the uh, you know the uh, the prosecuting attorney yeah and it was interesting because the whole thing's about fear and he's sitting right. in this chair and I'm like Al you got to sell it better than that man you look scared to death right now <laughs> that's right. <laughs> <laughs> So were they? So you just recently rewatched it, or you watch it all the time? But what are there any things you picked up on this recent viewing that you had missed, maybe in the past? 
Um, I probably watch this movie at least once a year. Definitely mm-hmm. catch it anytime it's on uh, HBO or cable because I'm still a cable sucker. Uh, I don't yep. know if there's many of ours left. <laughs> I I noticed this uh, the other day when I was rewatching it. I didn't realize this before, but the end of the movie is very Frogger. Oh, that's Did you true. notice that he's kind <laughs> he's of doing to grab the, the Frogger yeah, thing? Yeah, <laughs> true. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because he's trying to grab the little uh, the little shuttle. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which are you a uh, Seinfeld guy? Oh, I'm a total Seinfeld guy. And one of the Love best it. episodes when, oh, when yeah, George absolutely. does the real life Frogger. <laughs> <laughs> and he tries to stop the bus with his hand or whatever, the truck, and then jumps out <laughs> of the way and it just bl- obliterates. Yeah. Oh, so good. <laughs> yeah, but I would definitely recommend this movie. There's anybody, just like you said, anybody I've said, hey, have you seen this movie? Might want to go check it out. The feedback I usually get back is, man, that was a great movie. Yeah, like how did I miss this the first time? Yeah, and I don't think I don't I didn't find it in HD, so it's you know it's got that grainy kind of feel. Sure, um, but yeah, you know, it's nineteen ninety one, I think, right? So yeah, and I'm actually surprised it had it never picked up steam just because of Meryl Streep, because Meryl Streep is such a legendary actress, and she continues to be, you know, she's kind of an icon today. So I'm I'm surprised that people just haven't you know gone through her filmography, and and this hasn't picked up steam. Yeah, I'm surprised by that too. And this is this is a movie that absolutely could be redone. Oh, sure, sure. I, I almost yeah, hope they don't though, up. because they probably screw it up. Because I don't think you get, you get somebody like like Albert Brooks that that could compare to that. Yeah, you got to be careful, obviously. But uh, you know, Ocean's Eleven. I mean, it came out great. Well, actually, in many ways, I, I don't think the original Ocean's, even though I enjoy watching it, is that good. Especially what it turned into. I think the the remake or the revision was way better than the original. Yeah, and I think uh, same thing would happen here is it wouldn't have, um, you know, you're going to enter now cell phones into it and sure. social media and blah, blah. So it would get modernized and make it a little bit funner possibly. But yeah, you can't have a straight laced community like Sebastian, Sebastian Maniscalco can't do this part. Like you got to have somebody that's got more of a dry sense of humor for sure. Oh, definitely. Absolutely. Well, as always, Sonny, thank you so much and uh, stay healthy. All right. We're back with Eric Sinzak. Welcome back, Eric. Thanks, Brian. Thanks for having me back on. No problem. And so we were going to have, we're going to have you on for a movie that whenever I asked if they've seen this movie, like a, a movie that I, I don't judge people on because, but I, I judge them in the sense of when, when usually when they say they've seen it and there's not many people that have seen this, they, their eyes light up because it's like this, <laughs> this gem that only the cool kids know about. And, uh, and if they haven't seen, it, I always recommend it. So, and the movie of course is defending your life. Now, when, how did you hear about this movie? Uh, did you see it when it first came out or was this something that you just kind of stumbled upon? Well, as you know from many of our conversations, I during the summer when I was a kid, I just lived watching TV and cable TV. Mm-hmm. So this was like on repeat on HBO. I watched this movie over and over again. Yeah, but uh, I it was one of my favorite films. So I, I love this movie. It's hilarious. I think it's an awesome movie. So before this, had you seen many Albert Brooks movies? Because he's definitely got a style unlike any any other filmmaker. Uh, no, not really. I I just knew he was uh, a comedy writer. I knew he was, you know, had just done some, you know, not not much of anything else. You know, I, or I didn't know of anything else he had really done. So I'd seen him on TV doing a couple other things, but not really anything like m- movie related. So okay, so you'd never seen like broadcast news or or anything like that. I saw it later after mm-hmm. this, like 
me and my dad were watching it one evening, I think, but I saw this first. Got it. Got it. Yeah. So there's just something so refreshing and different about this movie. Uh, I don't know why I first saw it. I mean, it was definitely well after it came out. Uh, it was probably in the late nineties. I, I probably just had Netflix and uh, this popped up and I was like, well, Meryl Streep's in it. And I do like Albert Brooks. I knew that he did stand up comedy way back in the early seventies. So I'm like, yeah, I'll give it a shot. But I think mm-hmm. uh, movies, I think are always afraid to kind of touch on, on death because it's kind of just a weird subject and let alone, you know, be a, a comedy or, you know, or even a romantic comedy. It's just so far fetched, but the way they did it is just, it's <laughs> completely unique. I don't, it's never been matched with this kind of u- uniqueness. I've never seen anything else like it. And yeah, a romantic comedy about people who are dead. Yeah. I'm like who the hell pitches that? I mean, would you walk into a, studio exec's office and throw that at him and he's probably going to look at you and say all right come back when you're not drunk right you know just sober up and we'll talk about something tomorrow you know just mm-hmm. <laughs> well and it, it might be initially why it probably didn't do well at the box office even though you have you know one of the greatest actresses of all time in it uh but yeah i mean like why would it just uh, the premise alone would probably scare people off yeah i'm sure it was very off-putting but and i don't think they marketed it well probably i mean right and there was a lot of other films that you know around uh, probably at the time that they had to compete with so i doubt they you know i don't even really know what was out you know the 90s were uh, you know very chaotic film time so i you know you're constant competition for space on the marquee wall sure so i i'm sure that you know if it's a romantic comedy if you're not doing a big budget action flick if you're not doing some blockbuster with you know stallone or schwarzenegger or something else and you're throwing it out there you got albert brooks yes you've got meryl streep but you've got albert brooks okay where's Mm -hmm. the a-list guy right okay he's okay ripped horn but he's playing a, a minor role all right where's the big okay Okay, well, we've got Meryl Streep. All right, well, let's just throw a little bit of money in it. We'll put it out there for uh, see how it does opening weekend. If not, we'll kill it. So yeah. that's kind of, I think, how the execs looked at it. And they were like, mm, we'll float it and see if it does anything. If it doesn't, then we'll just not worry about it. So I don't right. think they're really worried. Mm-hmm. And it's not an action film at all. Uh, it's totally a talking film. It's very cere- cerebral. Uh, yeah, it's just a, but it, for those that, that stumble upon it, you find yourself just totally riveted and like, well, okay, where are they going to go with this? Because uh, you just, you, you have no idea the first time you see it, like how, how they're going to do this. And they keep shocking you about all the really, you know, really kind of interesting things like, you know, having a lawyer basically defend your life. It's, it's pretty yeah. hilarious. And the writing is superb. The oh. comedy is great. The settings are wonderful. The way they've got the setup is perfect the whole way through. You will never be dull in this film. In this, film. you'll never, you never just get dull bored. In, yeah. in the whole bored in the whole thing. Yeah. Just sit there and you'll be captivated by it the whole way through. I love this movie. So, who are some of your favorite characters in this? Uh, I like Rip Torn. Uh, <laughs> I think Bob Dylan. Uh, yes, yes, Bob Diamond. I think he's just a, a great character. Um, I, I, you know, the idea of having a lawyer in between Earth and Heaven, or moving forward, as they say, is interesting. And you know, the whole big brain theory 
that mm-hmm. they they put forward. I think that's hilarious. You know that the, the the idea that they put people down a little bit for having a little brain, like especially right. when he goes <laughs> to the comedy club. Oh, you yeah. know. So there's this little brain in here yesterday. I'm like, okay, well, wait a minute. This <laughs> you're just calling people little brains instead of you know. And he and he says, you know, I, I came from a world with penis envy. Now I got to worry about brain envy. So. <laughs> Yeah, that that whole thing just cracks me up. So I love Rip Torn's character in it because you know it talks about the big brain thing, and um, you know Albert Brooks's character is I think he plays it perfectly, and he's sort of the everyman that just he's he's not too nervous. He's nervous enough that he's almost like the guy who's just he's almost like everybody who would be in a new environment and be like, okay, I can get the hang of this. Maybe I can't, and that's just sort of how he feels about everything there. So. I think he, I think he did a great job in it. So yeah, and 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 a perfect compliment to Meryl Streep, who basically lived until her death the perfect life. I mean, she was the perfect type of person. I mean, she and that that was also a funny part of the scene because they're going through you know the history of your life, and Albert Brooks is so insecure about his own life of what he didn't fulfill, and then he basically Meryl Streep fulfilled everything. She saved her kids from a burning house. <laughs> I mean, she basically lived the life of of, of a saint. They're watching her go back in to save the cat. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> they're, they're not going to judge her on that. They just want to see it again. I love right. that part. He's like, yeah, he, he's just sitting there in awe of all the stuff she's been able to do. And he's they're watching him for nine days just to pick apart nine days to tear him down. So, That's right. yeah, it's no question she's moving forward. Yeah. But, that, but it kind of leads to the moral of the story, which there's a lot of morals in, in this movie that aren't heavy handed. But it, and that's why the movie's so great is he has the innate ability to make her always laugh. And so while he's definitely flawed, we're all flawed. Um, even to her, uh, she didn't necessarily fall for someone that was perfect. She fell for someone that that made her feel good. Yeah. And I can see where that was the message that they were trying to get across. It says nobody is perfect, but there's. Mm-hmm that doesn't mean there's not someone perfect for you. Right. And that, that's the wonderful point of the story is that let's not beat ourselves up over this. Let's just stop trying to kill ourselves over trying to make each other perfect, uh, make ourselves perfect. And yeah, it's, it's not, this isn't forever. Stop right. trying to hurt ourselves over this. So I do, I do love the the feeling you get by the time this is over with. It, this movie never made me feel bad by the time this movie was over with. I always felt great watching this. Yeah, and that's a great point. Not only is it very refreshing, it's also a feel good movie, like you said. What are some of your yeah. favorite scenes? Uh, I <laughs> I love where it, they did. We're going to show you sixty four clips out of Daniel's life in the next <laughs> five minutes. <laughs> and they, they went through all of his, uh, they said, are these, they said something like, these are just general misjudgments. And they went through <laughs> like him falling off the roof and then like getting caught, like his door, like his arm was caught in the door of a car and it was like running away with him and stuff like that. Just right. mistakes. And he had that interim lawyer for that one day and he looks over and he says, aren't you going to like do anything for like, or is, aren't you going to object? He goes, no, I'm fine. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, it's so good. It's, it's like not gonna, not gonna, you know, Bob Diamond's not there for the day. So, oh, and he also asked him. He says, uh, he asked Bob where he was when he came back. He says, Bob, where were you? He says, I've been here. I've been wondering where the hell were you. He says, I'd tell you, but you wouldn't understand. He says, right. wouldn't understand? Where? No, I want to know where you were. He says, I was trapped near the inner circle of fault. 
<laughs> right. And he goes, you're right. I don't understand. <laughs> the little brain, little brain. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I also love when they went to, um, you know, they went to that hall of what you were when you, you know, in your past oh, life. Past lives pavilion. Yes. Yeah. Oh, God. Yeah, it was so great. No, which always brings up the point, like in our past lives, why are we, I think he even says in the movie, why are we always somebody famous? Like there's only so many like legendary people and in, in, in the past. And it's like all, when we go back, we're always some sort of prince or uh, some sort of king, but we're never just like Joe Schmo that gets eaten by a lion like uh, Albert Brooks. <laughs> yeah, he's, yeah, he's like, well, what are you? He says, I'm dinner. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> running through the jungle. Oh. <laughs> uh... The one guy, the big, the uh, the heavy set older guy, he says, "Well, he's like, what the hell is this? He's a little girl, like combing right. this doll's hair." <laughs> I thought it was so so. Um, what's so interesting about this film is, if you remember, what really dates this film is. Do you remember who hosts the Past Lives Pavilion? I believe it's, uh, if I remember correctly, Shirley McLean, right? Right, and you yeah. remember in the '90s, the big New Age movement. And, and, you know, they're so shocked to see Shirley MacLaine when they go in there. They're like, oh, God, it's her. You know, oh, my God. You know, so it's like it really it really dates the movie because, you know, in the 90s, it was all the big everyone was all into spiritual, you know, like Mm -hmm. past lives. She hosted so many like past lives and, and all kinds of like videos and everything like that. I remember all of that going on back in the, back then. So I thought that was really interesting how that, how much that having her appear right. in that scene. Cause she, you know, she is right there in a very prominent figure in that, in that part of the film, it really dates it. So I thought that was really interesting. Yeah, definitely. It's, and, and most people, younger folks aren't going to remember Shirley McLean. So yeah, absolutely. No, uh, and they, they get that joke. That joke was huge in the film for that one moment. So right. Yeah. But yeah, besides that, pretty much the rest of the film is timeless. Oh yeah, yeah. That's the only. I think that's the only like dated joke in the whole thing. So, mm-hmm. which is hard with comedy. I mean, like, I mean, almost every comic movie, even even the ones that last forever, whether it be like Airplane or the Blues Brothers, there's going to be some timely thing, you know, that that. Yeah. If you don't have a reference, they're not going to get it as much. What cracks me up though about stuff like Airplane, even the dated jokes. I mean. You could you could almost like reason it out, even if you're a young person. You're like, okay, that's got to be a '70s reference. Now I'm going to go <laughs> Google it and figure out what the hell that is. Well, so. a per a perfect example of that, of course, is is uh, Barbara Billingsley who plays Beaver Cleaver's mom. And so today they see it, this older, you know, this very you know elderly white woman talking jive to to two black guys but back then it made it even more funny because she was the most you know lily white mom of the 50s you know speaking oh, jive. Yeah. So, yeah and that that's yeah so but today they probably still find it funny but they don't get why so it was so funny back then right it it like because they didn't grow up watching leave it to be and then all of a sudden see her on airplane like holy crap she's <laughs> Or they won't understand why Kareem Abdul-Jabbar is so funny playing the pilot. And yeah, definitely like things like that. Yeah, I, I, my son was sitting with us the other night watching Airplane. And I was having to explain, oh no, he really is a basketball player. <laughs> <laughs> right. Here's some, fun, here's some fun trivia. Do you know who that role was supposed to go to? The Kareem no, role? I, no, I don't. Who was it? They, they wanted it to be Pete Rose. Uh, the you know of course the famous <laughs> ball player, but they were filming during summer and he was playing ball. 
Oh my god, that would have been hilarious. It would have, but I mean, they, how do you deny Kareem? Kareem had one of the funniest scenes in the whole movie. He was perfect for it. He he was straight as an arrow, perfect deadpan delivery. Oh, awesome! <laughs> so good. So we we kind of we kind of diverted a little good. bit from tangent. Sorry, yeah. sorry. <laughs> it's the 40th anniversary of airplane, so it's it's definitely worth talking about. But we'll go back to uh, to defending your life. Um, how often do you revisit this movie? Uh, if it if I could ever catch it on TV, I will watch it again. I did a rewatch of it not that long ago for this, uh, and I trust me, man, I've watched it every time I could get a hold of it on TV or you know cable. But um, I need to buy a physical copy of it because you know getting a you know a digital copy sometimes is tough. But yeah, you know, putting it on something to to hold on to it. But I want to get a physical copy of this because it's a great movie. It is, and, and this is one I was really excited to do because I'm not sure a ton of people have seen it, and I really want to introduce people to this movie because I think all ages and, and even younger folk would, would really like this movie because I, I do really think it's timeless. I think so, too, and it's a sweet film. It's nothing, uh, you know... As far as, you know, modern films go, the message of it is, you know, just as enjoyable to watch now as it was when it first came out. Mm-hmm. And it's to me, it's a real shame that it didn't do much better in the in theaters and have more people get uh, an idea for it because it's got a very timeless message to it. And I think people nowadays, if they find it and they come across it and they see it and they're like, oh, I'll give this a chance. They, they will really enjoy it. And like you and I know this movie we will pass it on to other people. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, as always, thank you so much, Eric, and and definitely pass along this movie to other folks. Oh, I do. Thank you, Brian. (laughs) No problem. Come hang out and chill with Brian A. Davis and the Bad Beat. Wednesdays, 11 p.m. Eastern, right here on ThatMetalStation.com.